Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What you need to do is invest in second-generation Vietnamese Americans and help them understand why it's incredibly important to participate in the political process. These things were not taught to me, and I assume they weren't taught to a lot of other Vietnamese Americans because our parents just did not trust the political system. My name is B. Nguyen, and I'm a state representative in Georgia for House District 89, and I am the Democratic nominee for Secretary of State. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. And first off, I'd like to thank Benny Tran for this warm introduction. Thank you for having me on. And thanks, Benny, as well, for connecting us. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? Being Vietnamese to me is something that has always been part of my identity. Somebody recently asked me, are you the type of elected official who is going to advocate for the AAPI community? And how do you see, you see yourself in that role? And I said, this is not a choice about who I am. This is just who I am. I understand my family story. I understand my family narrative. I know that I'm the daughter of Vietnamese refugees, that my parents left their country in the late seventies and they came to America in search of basic civil liberties and in in search of economic opportunities. And growing up in my household, we spoke Vietnamese only with my parents, um, still today and ate Vietnamese food every single day. Um, And so it is something inescapable. It is not a choice. It is just innately who I am. And all the decisions in my life have been informed around my family history, who my parents are, and why why they're in America today. What kind of debates or talk or question did you have around the dinner table growing up? We never talked about politics or religion, which is pretty common, right? It's like, no, no talking about that. Um, you know, it was hard because I think um, probably common with many children of immigrants, the conversations at the dinner table are not very nuanced and they're not very in-depth, in part because you're navigating two totally different cultures. And so while we were American um, and my sisters and I had this completely different lived experience. It was hard to have those conversations with my parents about what that looked like for us. And so 
I do remember that it was very important for our family to have dinner together every single night. So my dad would get home from work and we would all sit down for our family dinner. And, you know, back then when I was growing up, it wasn't a cell phone technology driven world. So it wasn't a situation where everybody was on their phones or trying to get on their devices. But the importance of having a family meal was um, kind of part of our family upbringing. Um, we probably didn't talk a lot about um, anything meaningful. And then there was also the cross-cultural conversations where my sisters and I would speak to each other in English, and then we would pivot over to Vietnamese when we're speaking to our parents. Um, but what I do remember connecting with both parents on the most was we were all avid readers when we were young. And so my dad would take us to the library, which was like a really fond memory of like whenever he had time off from work, we would go to the library with him. And then when we go to the mall with our mom, we would always make a beeline to the bookstore. So wow. we did those activities together. We just didn't really talk about a lot of things as a family growing up. But where do you think the political sort of ambition came from? I think that it was just watching how my parents were navigating their experience in America. I grew up in Augusta, Georgia, which is two hours east of Atlanta. Both of my parents speak English with a pretty heavy accent. When we were young, my sisters and I were often tasked to be the translators for my parents. Specifically, we spent a lot of time with my mom at the grocery store and at the mall. And what I would see is people ignoring her altogether or overlooking her. And I would have to step in and say, my mom needs this, or my mom said this. Mm -hmm. And it instilled in me this um, desire to make sure that whatever I was doing in life, it would be to empower other people. I didn't want anyone to feel the same way that my mother did. And it was to um, make sure that people have a voice at the table. I didn't understand that that could be achieved through the political process because we never talked about politics. We never talked about voting. We never talked about any of those things. But when I left home, I ended up starting a nonprofit working in our public school systems in Georgia and really saw the failures of government um, in Georgia, not defunding our public education system. A lot of the kids also didn't have access to healthcare or secure and affordable housing or healthy foods. And then there's a very high level of victimization in the community. And I started to understand that the only way to effectuate change on a larger level was get involved on the policy side. And then eventually worked on my first political campaign in 2016 for Sam Park, who was our first openly gay man elected to the Georgia General Assembly, and also the first AAPI Democrat ever elected in our history. And I saw that he was somebody I resonated with, that his representation was important to me. And that was my, that was how I got involved in politics because I had never seen anyone who looked like me um, in that position before. And I was never asked to participate. So it was just kind of figuring out what was important to me, how I would move the needle on those changes. And it led to uh, eventually me running for office myself. So this all happened uh, after, I'm sure, college, it sounds like. But was there any gradual sort of buildup to, you know, the awareness of that you had uh, by the time you reached the Sam Park campaign? Not really. Um, I think it's pretty common in Georgia and in our country where there hasn't traditionally been a high level of engagement from the AAPI community. Um, my parents said, you better study hard, make good grades stay out of trouble, keep your head down. 
you need to be a doctor or a lawyer. And, and they said at worst, I could be a pharmacist or an engineer. And so it was really about economic security, right? And making sure that I was never going to endure the same kind of poverty that they endured. And one of the pressure points, I think, that a lot of children of immigrants experience is your parents always constantly say, we risked our lives for this, we sacrificed this so that you could do X, Y, Z. And there wasn't an understanding from my parents' perspective that the reality for me looks so much different, that I could try different things and fail and still have a pathway, that I could kind of figure out what I wanted to do and still have a pathway, that, that the, um, they, they were just worried for my future. Right. And politics was also something that they never really trusted um, and they never really trusted government either. And so they wanted us to stay far away from all of those things. And I think it's also kind of, if you make yourself unnoticeable, maybe you will be unnoticed and maybe that will mean you will remain safe. Right. And so it was for them, the basic necessities of economic security and safety and not making any waves. So we, we kind of know this historically with, uh, AAPI community or Vietnamese parents in particular, that, you know, politics is not, you know, something that we aspire to, to, to get into. But there's a lot of people now, Vietnamese Americans that know quite a bit about politics, but they won't engage in to the act of, of being active or even speaking their mind. How do you think we can sort of motivate and mobilize more AAPI community or Vietnamese Americans to get into the fight? Well, I think it's complicated because of the history um, from, um, you know, which our older generation came from. And so that distrust of government still very much exists. And there's a lot of trauma and there's also a lot of misinformation. Um, and so I think that there are certainly challenges engaging our older generation. Um, where I've seen we have been able to move the needle is language access, right? And making sure that we are communicating with our older generation Vietnamese in language. As a Georgian, I have been tasked for major elections in our, our state to go and talk to Vietnamese voters. And as I've gone door to door over the election cycles, oftentimes voters, they want a point of emotional connection. And so me, by just being able to speak Vietnamese, they automatically it removes a level of anxiety for them and it changes the way in which you're able to engage. And so I think it's a combination of the education piece, the language access piece and meeting people where they are. But I also think because of our history, it's just going to take a long time to overcome those things. And what we need to do is invest in second generation Vietnamese Americans and help them understand why it's incredibly important to participate in the political process. These things were not taught to me, and I assume they weren't taught to a lot of other Vietnamese Americans because our parents just did not trust the political system. Yeah, and I guess that a lot of Americans don't trust the political system today. How is Georgia politically different, or is it different from the rest of the country? Georgia is a, a very unique place in the South. So I think people who are not from Georgia might have some misconceptions about who we are as a state, but we're a state who is uh, 
our state has been crucial to the civil rights movement. We are an incredibly diverse state and diversity, not just in the terms of black and white, but also Asian and Latino. We also have incredibly powerful organizing infrastructure in the state of Georgia because for so long, people didn't perceive that a place like Georgia could turn blue, right? And so we've had to do a lot of stuff on our own. And so I think that Georgia is in a position to um, change and that the, the direction where we're heading is not the Georgia that people envision. And what we call it is the New South. It's the bringing together of Georgians from all over our state based on these shared values, the core values of democracy, the core values of justice and equality, and the ability to uh, have health care have affordable housing, and the ability to live in dignity as workers. And so I think that Georgia is in a unique position where we have been able to really show people what it looks like when they galvanize and when they show up. We're a state where we had unprecedented turnout with AAPI voters in 2020 and in 2021, and that helped deliver wins for those two U.S. Senate seats where we sent a Jewish man and a Black man to Congress. And so... um, I'm very proud to be a Georgian. I think that we um, have plenty of of leaders here who have helped pave the way for us. I mean, we're the home of MLK and John Lewis, and then now we're creating a new generation of leaders like Stacey Abrams and Reverend Warnock. Um, But there are a lot of folks on the ground who know that the change is urgent and we're gonna do the work to make sure we're talking to people from all over our state. I hope one day that your name is among the names that you just said, John Lewis, MLK, Stacey. It is right now to us, uh, a lot of Vietnamese Americans in our community. Uh, I, My job is to explore things that I don't know. And I don't know what exactly a secretary of state does. I'm sure that that's a, a fundamental, you know, probably something that somebody knows, but I don't really know what that position does. And why is it so important for you to have this win this time around? So the Secretary of State's office is actually a very robust role, and people most frequently talk about it in terms of elections and voting, and it's certainly critical to this election, ensuring that every eligible voter has access to the ballot box to be able to vote without barriers. In the state of Georgia, we have always been climbing this uphill battle where we have to out-organize voter suppression, and it's certainly true this election cycle. So one thing that's not talked about a lot is the mechanism by which AAPI voters vote, right? So in Georgia, what we saw was the racial group that used vote by mail the most was Asian American voters, in part because of language. And so I'm thinking about anecdotally my experience with my mom, where she felt much more comfortable having this ballot at home and she can ask us questions, right? And we can help her with her ballot versus the anxiety of going to the poll in person, which she does now. Um, But we're talking about first-time voters. We're talking about older generational voters. We're talking about limited English proficiency voters. So the ability to vote by mail is just much more accessible to a lot of AAPI voters. In the aftermath of 2021, where we saw this unprecedented number of AAPI voters turn out along with other voters in the state of Georgia, the General Assembly, with the support of our current Secretary of State, 
went back into the legislative session and they passed a 98 page bill that makes it harder for Georgians to vote. So we know among them, some of those provisions are, it makes it a crime to give out a bottle of water to a voter waiting in line. It takes away the secure drop boxes that were once available outside in 24 seven and easily accessible for people with physical disabilities and people who work hours that don't enable them to go during these nine to six voting hour blocks. But what they also did is they made it a lot harder to be able to vote by mail, both on the application side to apply to vote by mail and both by using the mail itself once you get it. And so we saw the rejection rates increase on the application side and on the ballot acceptance side. That is going to impact AAPI voters. So certainly on protecting our democracy on the election sites, on language access as it pertains to um, our elections division and accessibility. All of those things are very important within the Secretary of State's office. But what the Secretary of State also does is regulates licensures and it's the entity by which a small business owner, a corporation or an entrepreneur would go and apply for an LLC. So part of what I would like to do is make sure that the language access is there all across the board. We have so many minority owned businesses. We have a robust economy in Georgia where there are many people who don't speak English as their primary language. And so making sure all of that information is translated into our top spoken languages so we meet the needs of our workforce. But on the licensure side, which is um, specifically inter interesting for the Vietnamese community is it regulates cosmetology licenses. And so we know there are a lot of Vietnamese people in the nail industry. And I was talking to a woman who is in the industry and she shared with me something that I didn't know myself, which is, she said there are a lot of older Vietnamese who practice nails in another state for 20, 30 years, and then they move to the state of Georgia. They can pass the practicum part because they know the laws, they know the health laws, but they can't pass the written portion of the mm. test because it's not offered in other languages. And so that is something that I would like to see changed. And that is a barrier that most people would not know about, but it is a workforce barrier and it is very specific to um, communities where English is not a primary language. Geez, this is such a nonpartisan issue, it sounds like. But with our community... Sort of. <laughs> yes, yeah, sort of. Well, it should be. It should be nonpartisan, yes. right? Yeah. It should be, in theory, nonpartisan. But in Georgia, we have the Department of Driver Services. They offer the written portion of the driver's link, the driver's test in multiple languages, which makes sense. You know how to drive, you can pass the driving tests, but maybe your English proficiency is not to where you can pass the written test. So that is something the Department of Driver Services has done traditionally. And over the years that I've served as a lawmaker, there have been multiple attempts where Republicans try to pass these English only bills, right? And one of those bills targeted the Department of Driver Services and try to get rid of the written portion of the test in other languages. So in theory, it should not be a partisan issue. It's These are public safety issues. These are workforce issues. Um, but when you have a state where they are trying to create these um, non-issues and they are using the immigrant community as a way to galvanize our own voters, they do become partisan issues, but they should not be in theory, right? Yeah. I have an audience that's, uh, well, I tried to create a space where basically Vietnamese Americans or Vietnamese all around the world can just come on and just talk about the work that they do. I don't want to turn off 
people of any stripes to to come and listen to what somebody like Bing Win has to say. You know, but how do we get around this obstacle of having people on the other side, specifically older Vietnamese Americans or AAPI people in the community that are, you know, heavily leaning the other side to see like Bing Win is really here to create ways that can break down barriers, language barriers, just like you said in the in like the the nail industry. How do we get Yeah, I mean, I think understand. Of, yeah. Yeah. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Well, I think part of what's happening in our community, which isn't really talked about a lot, is the pervasive misinformation efforts. And so I actually read about this a few years ago where there were experiments done by, you know, far right publications where they wanted to translate um, information news basically into Vietnamese. And what ended up happening is they're translating a lot of misinformation into Vietnamese and our older generation only has one side of the story, right? There's not a, another effort that is as widespread where they're translating into our language as well. And so what happens is a lot of our older generation, they are reading only one source that is not actually a vetted journalism source. And they're reading a lot of misinformation in language and they have no other alternative to that, right? And so we've got to tackle misinformation because it's very targeted. It works very well. And um, it's not just the Vietnamese community that has been targeted. It's also Chinese Americans. It's also the Latino community with in-language Spanish access, right? So for me, I feel like we have to, uh, we have to have a plan to address the roots of this. And it's um, a collective effort to be able to address that. So part of what I would like to see, which this is actually starting to happen already, is the Department of Justice is going to start monitoring misinformation in other languages. There's now an understanding that that threatens our democracy in the same yes. way that misinformation occurs in English, right? And for me, as a Vietnamese American, it's extremely painful to see our older generation um, fall into the trap of misinformation. Seeing this Vietnamese flag at the Capitol on January 6th, at one point, I remember the um, mainstream news publications didn't actually recognize that that was a South Vietnamese flag. And they had a list of white supremacy hate flags, like in a little 
image block and the Vietnamese flag was on there. And I, I thought that's actually the South Vietnamese flag, right? Um, so we've got to tackle the misinformation piece. We've got to be able to invest in, in language access across the board, not just with the Secretary of State's office, but also like from a public health standpoint, right? So I remember when um, the first person died in Georgia from COVID-19 and our public health department set up these COVID-19 hotlines and they were only in English. And I called the governor's floor leader and I said, we've got to have other languages. This is a public health issue and everybody will be impacted if the information is not translated and it doesn't reach us broadly. Um, and then I think, you know, I think um, the younger generation, there's a lot more opportunity to galvanize young Vietnamese Americans and help young Vietnamese Americans understand that it is our duty to be politically active and that if we are not, decisions will be made for us. And that the silence that we have been taught, right? Um, it doesn't keep us safe. And we should remember not just the history of Vietnamese people in our country, but the history of all AAPI people in our country. And when we look at the history, then we can understand that we're all fighting against these systemic issues that have for so long oppressed so many people in our country. Um, and we have a responsibility to do that, to, to take part in the political process, the advocacy process, and when we see injustice, it's also our responsibility to speak up. And we should know based on our family history that um, we should take these threats to democracy very seriously. We should take threats to injustice very seriously. Um, and we should know from everything that has occurred in the last few years that if we try to make ourselves invisible, it doesn't keep us safe. Absolutely. I I have two uh, previous guests that I want to side note, uh, introduce, reintroduce uh, is Cookie Zung. She created the interpreter. She took all of these, uh, you know, mainstream news publications and had them interpreted uh, into Vietnamese. So she's doing great work with her volunteers. And I think there's volunteers around the world that helps her out with the interpreting. And obviously, uh, you and I know Pivot. Uh, a Vietnamese organization that's doing a lot of work um, in this world uh, of that we're talking about. Yes. Yeah, they have the Viet facts. Yes. Vietnamese facts on Correct. the side. And then Cookie, I believe Cookie and I have met virtually before, and I've seen some of her work um, on social media. And I have a little sister named Cookie. What? So I remember her. <laughs> but why do you have a uh, randomly but why do you have a sister that's named cookie well there are five girls in our family and um we were all two years apart with the exception of cookie she's 10 years younger than me and when my mom was pregnant with cookie she asked the young the fourth sister um fee like what do you want to name her and she said either cookie or candy because she was like a seven-year-old kid who was obsessed with like sweets right so fortunately we went with cookie instead of candy <laughs> you know uh in Vietnamese um, tradition i think i don't know if you've heard of this but I, isn't it the five daughter mm -hmm. a very important yes. distinction in yes. history correct yes. do you do you walk with that confidence and does your parents you know often talk about how important that is with you? 
Well, it's very interesting because my dad definitely wanted a boy, right? And he got five girls. And um, what ended up happening is a little bit different. So my dad is pretty traditional. He is a traditional conservative Vietnamese man. Um, however, he because he had five daughters, there were no gender roles in our family, right? And so in some ways he has become this ultimate feminist in the way that he views his daughters, because he's basically like, you all should and can do whatever you want to. Right. And he was like, you know, constantly trying to get us to help him fix cars. And, and then because there was no one else, we had to do stuff like help him put together furniture or whatever. So he actually instilled this, um, the, he actually instilled in us this, very strong foundation for being independent, being economically independent, and really leading into you should be able to do whatever you want. Although, of course, it was always like, you should be a doctor or a lawyer. But really, this idea that, you know, the the bar was very high for us, right? And so that's what ended up happening, living in a household with five girls. Not to say that he doesn't have the same viewpoints, like traditionally from a gender perspective of just who he is as an older Vietnamese man, but because he had five daughters and that's all he had in the household, it was this huge emphasis on what you all are able to achieve and what you're capable of. And of course, when we were growing up, there was always this comment of your dad having five girls, right? And so on the Vietnamese side, there was a new long gong chua conversations, right? And people would laugh and be like, oh, look at you. That's supposed to be so lucky. And then on the American side, they would be like, five girls, your poor dad. And we would always laugh and be like, well, if only you knew our dad. But that was essentially the how it impacted us growing up. I want to switch back over to the future of our democracy here in the U.S. Um, to have a better chance because we're so polarized all the time. What do you think needs to happen for yeah. Americans to to work together to improve uh, this country? Well, um, you know, we talked about it earlier, right? Like disinformation is huge. Yeah. People are being told lies and it works, right? Um, there's a lot of fear mongering and we've got to have a plan to fix it. And so we've got to do that from that side. Um, but there's also massive democracy form that needs to happen. One is ending legislative gerrymandering which has enabled lawmakers to create these districts that are very, very Republican or very, very Democratic. And so when a lawmaker is representing one of these districts, there's no incentive to compromise because your voters are going to be all Republicans or all Democrats. The legislative gerrymandering needs to end. Um, And we need to take money out of politics. Part of what we also see is the influx of money into our political process and the ability for a corporation to give limitless money to a candidate. That also has created a situation where it's very, very hard for the people to come before other special interests. And so we have these massive pieces of democracy form that we definitely need to tackle because the system the way it works now, it is not for the people, but it should be for the people. And all of these different parts um, make it to where the average person, their voice is diluted and other things come before them. And so it creates a system that makes it really hard for our elected officials to be incentivized by, for the good of the public, for the good of the country. 
it's always something else working in the background that voters may not see necessarily or they see, but it's very challenging to change unless we change those infrastructural things from a democracy reform. Um, and then, you know, I think also um, we've gotten in, we've gotten ourselves um, into a place in our country where um, the former uh, president was able to really uh, use, use the weaknesses of people to really exploit their fear and allow them to turn it into really pervasive hate, right? And we should have no tolerance. And what we're seeing is suddenly people walking around with swastikas as if that were an acceptable part of our society. And all of that needs to be condemned immediately. So um, I think that it's not necessarily that this doesn't exist before. It was just, it was given permission. Right. And now that it's been unleashed, we see more and more and more of it, right? And so um, we have to make sure that we as a country from our elected leaders to everybody else, we call out that hate and that division and it's unacceptable. And we call it as it is, right? Like there can't be this, rhetoric around, um, I think sometimes we try to say both sides of the aisle or both people are culpable, but both everybody, no matter what political affiliation you belong to, every single person is should be um, very forthcoming in denouncing some of the things that we have seen. Do you think that this genie of swastikas on the street and all of this hate we put back into the bottle and we go back to sort of a a society where before the last president was in office there was a sort of a decorum that we in american society all experienced together of course there's different sides to the way we look at things but there was respect i felt do you think it well i think that there was a common ground that um being a Nazi was not acceptable, right? Yes, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was like pretty well known to most Americans that that is not acceptable behavior, right? I don't necessarily, it's putting the genie back into the bottle, but really examining like the, all the things that led up to this moment and how do we address the root causes of this so that we can eradicate it permanently. I do think that, um, you know, it shows us as a country how much work we need to do. And I think for some time, there was this feeling that we're making progress and we will continue to make progress. But what we're seeing is um, that's not necessarily a natural, that's not necessarily what happens naturally, right? That we have to work for it. But if you think about post-war Germany and the rules that they set up, which is, you know, they they banned all that stuff. How do we even get to that if it hasn't gotten to full-fledged, you know, war or somebody being in a dictatorship position, you know, and then they're like, then they walked it back. They're like, okay, we cannot have a trace of that culture walking around on our mm-hmm. streets. How do we get that to kind of be enacted, you know, in a, in a live way and, and, and put that into action? 
Well, I mean, I think that, that it should be an accident in a live way, right? Like, like the having, um, and I guess it also depends on like how it shows up, right? Because we certainly understand that um, whether or not we like it, and this is actually kind of like um, when it comes to protecting the First Amendment, right? People often say that the things that may make you feel most uncomfortable, those are things that like illustrate like why it's important to protect the First Amendment, right? And so I think it just depends on what it is that is showing up because by laws, we can, we can pass and we do, and we have passed laws related to hate crimes, right? I mean, happening in Georgia and happening federally. Those are important from the legislative making process. I don't know what the answer is to having these proud boys show up. Um, I yeah. don't know what the answer is from a legislative standpoint of having these white supremacist proud boys Nazis showing up. I do think that um, I do think that there is a responsibility from our elected leaders to reject all of that, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. I do think that there are laws in place to protect people, but when it comes to you know, having a law in place that says you are not allowed to show up with this. I'm not sure that's the answer, if that makes sense. Right. It does make sense. You know, yeah. uh, I know your time is super limited and you're very busy uh, to to do the things that will get you to um, the office of secretary of state. I want to tell you that um, we out here in the Vietnamese American community uh, are, is looking forward to having you visit, I think sometime at the end of the month. And I want to say that there are friends of, uh, of mine uh, who are closeted Republicans, and <laughs> they're very open to seeing you and to meeting you and ultimately to making a decision about, you know, supporting a Vietnamese American candidate. And, uh, you know, I have so much love for my friends when they when they say, but open, and that's sort of what I would love to see the world. And if you don't agree with B wins politics, that's fine. One thing, but be open and be uh, open minded to hear what what somebody like you have to say, um, you know, on this trip. So I just wanted to let you know that. And thank you so much uh, for your time and, um, you know, being on the show. Thank you. And I would say what's interesting in Georgia is there's some of that same sentiment, right? I've been talking to Vietnamese voters who identify as Republican but they also understand that representation is important and not representation representation from the standpoint of we agree on these policies, but having somebody who does understand the cultural nuances, the struggle, right, and the issues that Vietnamese people are facing. And so even when I'm talking about language access, right, that's not really a partisan issue. It, right. It's turned into one by some people, but it's not a partisan issue. It makes sense, right? And so I think that um, for Vietnamese people, um, part of it is like seeing me and meeting me and having these conversations. Yes, indeed, it is. And we are uh, we look forward to to meet you. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for having me on. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. 
Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.